0: Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. In this episode, how important is privacy and confidentiality to ultra high net worth clients? How complicated is the current framework around information reporting? And what can be done to preserve some degree of confidentiality for clients? Well, hello and welcome. My name is David Whittaker. I'm a partner in the Tax and Wealth Planning team here at Mishcon, and I'm kindly joined by Oliver Morgan Crosby, a director at Evelyn Partners. Ollie, we're we're here today to talk about privacy and confidentiality in the context of the ultra high net worth community. I feel like that's a really significant topic at the moment because there are so many different regimes that are now in operation. There are so many ultra high net worth and high profile clients who are being splashed over the newspapers how important do you think privacy is to clients in this this current environment yeah privacy is certainly really important now more so than
1: ever it used to be that tax was very high on the agenda in terms of tax mitigation clients used to look at how they can mitigate their tax liabilities how they can keep that low and that was their main focus things have shifted now to tax still being very highly on the agenda for clients but to make sure that tax compliance is right, to make sure the tax is appropriate, but more importantly now, it's all about making sure that structure still does what it needs to do, whether that be privacy or anything else. Gone of the days of the kind of Panama-style structuring where people were hiding money in, in offshore jurisdictions. That, that simply isn't the case, and certainly not with, with the reputable firms around, around the UK and globally. We see our families wanting to protect their family. We see matriarchs and patriarchs of families desperate to make sure that their children aren't kidnapped, that their family properties and, and yachts and various assets that they spend time on aren't constantly being circled by a media helicopter.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And there's, there's an interlinking, isn't there, between the tax advice that we're giving and the tax optimization and privacy. Because I think now, as you said, in light of the Panama Papers and those, those data hacks, there's been a real public shaming of people who have engaged in aggressive tax avoidance or use of offshore structures to try and shelter income that they're not declaring and i think now we've gone it's sort of gone so far that actually there is a real sensitivity around an individual's tax affairs getting into the public domain and as a result a real desire you know to ensure that your structure is as vanilla as possible So that if there is ever a leak, and obviously we we try to take measures to ensure there isn't a leak, and that as you say, people's data and and privacy is protected. But actually, you, you want to. There's a reputational element that I think we perhaps we never really considered in as much detail as we do now.
1: Yeah, that's definitely right. I think when you read back, I'm sure you're the same. When you read back some of the advice that our clients have received in the early 2000s, most of the time you look at the even the language of the advice itself is really talking about you know. This is how you can save tax. This is what we're doing for you to be able to stop this part of your structure paying any tax. Whereas now, all of that advice has to stand up to the commercial scrutiny. And that's firstly from the tax authorities around the world, but probably more so from the media, from the public. Exactly coming to your point, you look at the, the issues of Rishi Sunak and his wife that came through a few months ago. You know, The reality was when, when, when they were initially advised on that, it wouldn't have come up, that discussion about you know, how would this look? Wouldn't come up, and to, to go to your point on the sort of vanilla structuring, you look at something like the Remissance basis. It's fairly vanilla. It's a vanilla piece of structuring. It's a well-trodden path. It's been around for for decades and decades. And the reality is now is that looking backwards, sometimes those pieces of advice seem so vanilla at the time, and then you look at them in a different light of day, in different economic, in different political, and in different different social situations and it really doesn't stand up. And I think what that probably dictates to us is that, is that these situations are constantly evolving, and therefore the advice has to evolve. So those kind of structures just need to be looked at. That kind of advice needs to be revisited. And if it does stand up, then some, some rationale behind why that advice is in place needs to be put there, because the data is in the public now. And even the data that's not in the public, if it is leaked to the public, it needs to stand up under scrutiny of, of the layman, of the public, not of tax authorities.
0: I think that's exactly the right point, isn't it? And just to pick up on the the point you made about Rishi Sunak and his wife, you're absolutely spot on. I think there's the, the way that we see the structures and that they are pretty vanilla and that clients are all over the world doing this. And we commonly use offshore jurisdictions for entirely legitimate reasons. But I think the way that it's presented in the media. And it was so frustrating to read some of the coverage around Rishi Sunak. And I was thinking to myself, well, I'm a tax expert and I know that some of this is incorrect. Mm. But obviously the media reporting on all sorts of things like rocket science or nuclear (laughs) power, about which I know nothing. And I get all of my news from the media. So you're a bit concerned. (laughs) What else are they misreporting? Yeah,
1: yeah, you also realise that in the media, they they sort of don't need to know the truth, do they? They need to write something that people are going to read and that that resonates with people. And actually, in something complex, like tax or like rocket science or whatever, it's almost better for them not to be getting involved in the details. Because unless you're a tax expert or in the industry, you're probably not that interested in it. But the reality is, is, what you want to read is the headlines of to, you know, non-dom saves tax because of claiming to be not based in the UK. And, and those kind of headlines is what sells the newspapers, what gets people reading. It's exactly the same with the, uh, with the panoramas that you come sometimes get, which, which completely, rightly so, simplify and dumb down what is an entirely complex, mm-hmm. huge issue with, with all sorts of different facets. And they dumb it down to a, you know, a simple one-page diagram that they can explain to the layman without the layman having to think at all. And then they tear it apart based on the complete simplification of what's a very complex matter.
0: Yeah, exactly. It sensationalizes the news without really a proper appreciation of the the nuances and the the tax complexities that we're advising on. But yeah, I think that's the environment that we're advising in now. And that's Mm -hmm. always what I have to have regard to when I'm talking to clients about going into structures and legacy planning and succession planning is, well, how is this going to play out if it were ever to get into the public domain? And also, you kind of have to have one eye on the future. How is it going to play out when your children are taking over the business? And you've got to have that public relations element in mind at all times, I think. Definitely. And I also think as, the, as we look to the future,
1: we're seeing it now, but so much more reporting to tax authorities. To come back to the, the sort of tax authorities part of the whole reporting culture and and, uh, who you have to answer to now what's really i think interesting now is you see the, the new generation having to report so much more to local tax authorities and tax authorities exchanging so much information that 10 years ago it didn't really matter whether information was up to date on records for trustees for banks and and offshore jurisdictions because no one ever got hold of that and it was an internal record now that information is is transferred. And we've had clients with letters from HMRC, from foreign tax authorities, either nudge letters or specific letters to the client saying we know about X, Y, and Z. And there's there's a few kind of horror stories of that where you know one is we know about X, Y, and Z and we didn't as the tax advisors. So we suddenly get on the phone to the client and we say, This letter's quite important. We need to put your you know all the cards on the table here because we can't advise unless we're in the picture here. We don't know. But the other thing is, is we we had a letter from HMRC actually that talked about we've got information from an offshore jurisdiction that you hold millions of pounds in this bank account and this is your chance to come forward about it. You know, We've received the information from the bank and our letter back to HMRC there without advice that client may well have sent a letter back to HMRC saying oh my god sorry we'll, we'll bring this up to date we'll report it now. We looked back through historic data and historic tax returns and and said to HMRC, "Thanks very much, but that amount of income has been on his tax return for the last three years. So, if you'd just looked at his tax return, you wouldn't have had to receive that information from the Cayman Island bank that, that you thought mm-hmm. that you were getting for the first time." So, although there's the, all this data that goes back and forward between authorities, the reality is is that actually the data is poor data, and there is so little resource at HMRC and all of the offshore tax authorities. It's very difficult to bring any sense of that data
0: yeah and i think that is perhaps you're you're quite right i think it's insufficient resource within the tax authorities to review it but also the sheer number of avenues through which they receive this information right there are so many different reporting regimes now yeah. that we need to be aware of and thinking about when we're thinking about succession planning or an offshore structure for a client so we have just to name a few off the top of my head the register of overseas entities for companies that are holding property in the UK, we've got the persons with significant control register, the UK companies, we've got the trust register, yep. which attacks both offshore and UK trusts. We've got CRS, we've got FATCA, and there's probably a few others that I haven't even thought about. And obviously yeah. that's just those what we're concerned principally about in the UK, that's not to mention. And, and,
1: and a few of them fairly new you know off the block it's not like this all happened 5 years ago and now we're we're living in that environment this is constantly evolving and there's new things constantly coming in do you find that most of your clients are worried about public registers but not particularly worried about giving information to authorities you know tax authorities government bodies
0: in some respects it depends on the client and where they're from and as i think there are some clients that are from particular jurisdictions where there is a real concern about the information that goes to the authorities and how that might be used obviously Ritz Carlton is a case in point but there are also other examples of where that information is being used improperly or could be shared with people that it shouldn't be shared with but on the whole I think you're absolutely right there's certainly no no reluctance on our clients to comply with their regulatory obligations but there is a concern to ensure that their information is not unnecessarily publicly available. And that's often the sort of the elements that we're looking at. And people are concerned about privacy for a whole host of legitimate reasons. I had a client recently who was the sister of a a well-known deceased actor, and she had inherited all of his IP and his image rights um, after his death. And she had used those proprietary rights to Enter into a venture with a production company in the US, and she made a very successful series based on his image. Anyway, as a result, she received all sorts of vitriol and hate mm. and trolling online because she was deemed by his sort of superfans to be exploiting his legacy. Anyway, a few fast forward a few years, and and um, she's been given an offer from a, a UK production company to do a, a similar sort of series using his image, and she's very concerned about her privacy and the fact that she's engaging in that venture again and that will get out and so she was come to us to say well if i were to enter into this uk jv you know what are my reporting obligations would my identity be publicly disclosed and our answer was well in principle yes on the basis of the persons with significant control register um but there might be solutions we can consider either whether you fall within one of the exemptions for fear of being at risk of violence or intimidation." Or we could look at structuring solutions that may preclude your identity being publicly reported. But it, it's a massive concern and something that you, have you know, it's this sort of blanket, everybody doing this particular structure needs the report is really quite a blunt instrument. And I think you're right, it's evolving so quickly that a lot of the legislation has maybe not been entirely thought through and it, the way it operates is not really that logical or really given the government the information that they really want.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, we had, we had a similar type of situation actually with the, with the new Register of Overseas Property Owners. Mm. And it kind of highlights that this doesn't have to be in terms of confidentiality and why and who. Yes, you seem to see a lot of Middle Eastern clients who are, who are desperate to sort of maintain that anonymity, confidentiality, because they're worried about what authorities are going to do with their data. But actually, you see it closer to home. We had a Spanish client whose daughter, an ultra high net worth, you know, multi-billionaire, whose daughter had actually been kidnapped and held ransom. And thankfully, that all resolved itself and and his daughter was back. But as a consequence of that, when the Register of Overseas Property Ownership came in, this was a huge, huge thing to the point where we were selling properties. You know, he he said, under no circumstances do I want people knowing that that's my house, that that's my family home, even in the UK. You know, these are UK properties where he said, "I I don't care that the The UK don't have that sort of system and and, and it generally is a safer environment. He said, if it's registered back to me and people can know that it's my property, Mm. I
0: don't want it. That's really difficult, though, because that legislation came in force with virtually no notice. Yeah. We, it sort of comes in with retrospective effect, right? So if he owned the property whenever it was, as that February or March yeah. earlier this year, he's reportable, even if he's subsequently disposed of the property in the meantime. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and so some of the, you know, like with all of these things, and actually it's funny that, as you say, it's almost a retrospective reporting obligation. And that's why it sort of involves that delicacy and, and working very quickly to either dispose or or come up with a solution. Whilst that is a reporting issue, you see exactly the same things that came in, like we said right at the start, when we said that where it used to be tax minimization, it's now all about protection of structures and anonymity, confidentiality. The same almost respective reporting came in, if you remember, in 2012 when ATED came in and suddenly it was a case of, oh, well, it's okay. If you don't want to pay ATED, you can de-envelope. Well, there's massive cost to de-enveloping. So you have all these structures now paying the annual tax on envelope dwellings that if you would set them up today, you would never set them up in that situation, but you're stuck because of the cost of de-enveloping that. It's a similar thing now we're seeing with reporting, where there's a huge cost to change the structure, or you have to lump the fact that you're suddenly reporting something on a basis that you never thought you needed to when you set the structure up.
0: I think that's a fantastic case in point, isn't it? The residential property, because... When we both first started, virtually all foreign investors coming in and, and buying ultra-prime property in the UK would do it through a trust and underlying company structure. And then they introduced ATED, imposing the annual charges. But I think on the whole, people were quite happy to keep their structures on the, the basis of the other benefits that were conferred. Then we subsequently had the capital gains tax charge introduced, and then the IHT advantages taken away. And it's still at that point, as you say, there was obviously a cost to de-enveloping. But I think the the singular advantage that was still derived from that structure was privacy. Mm. And now they've taken that away. And so I think a lot of people who were making these, you know, these fantastic investments have sort of had the rug pulled out from under them a little bit in that they now will no longer have any privacy in respect to their ownership of these properties. And it's, it's a real concern for people. So I think you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground in terms of the regimes and the different reporting obligations that apply. What sort of things have you done to try and protect clients' privacy or mitigate the report or at least manage the reporting? Yeah,
1: I, I think to protect people's privacy as, as the game is constantly changing is a much harder position than to make sure everything is in place. And actually, it's as much these days about reassuring clients where the reporting is going, as it is to say, look, okay, we'll move to this structure that might maintain privacy. You know, We'll use to nominees to try and maintain privacy and to try and get around some of the obligation. That is all well and good. But the reality here is that it's such a fast-moving pace that quite often the best solution is just to say, look, let's just make sure everything is, it goes back to your point right at the start, everything is as vanilla as we can make it. Because it's a vanilla structure, the reporting is as minimal as we need to make it. And it's very easy to get that reporting spot on, so that you don't get a letter from the the authorities in five years' time saying, "Well, hang on, this reporting was wrong." So, for example, we have a family, an international family, with trusts, with a French brother, and we've already seen the amount of penalties that the French tax authorities can can put on you for inappropriate reporting in France. And it's almost a case of, "Well, look at what's happened there. Let's learn our mistakes." And now that we have all these reporting obligations in for UK. Let's make sure we get that right completely from the start, whether that be by de-enveloping, by, by winding up structures, or whether we go into these structures and make sure that we know exactly what the data that's being sent
0: is and we get that data right. And that's the difficulty, right? It's because the way that the, the different rules and regulations apply imposes the reporting burden potentially on different entities. So you could have a bank reporting account information for a company that is also doing some reporting and Mm. they may not necessarily have sight of what the other is reporting. So what we've done for certain clients is try to engage in an exercise where you consolidate and streamline that reporting burden so it's all being done by one or two entities. Mm. Um, And there are obviously certain things you can do from a, a common reporting standard. You can try and ensure that if your assets are managed by a type one financial institution, then you are potentially changing the characterization of that entity from a CRS perspective, such that it's responsible for its own reporting. And I think a lot of clients are much happier to be the ones in the driving seat and in charge of what they are reporting. I think the concern, as you say, is that there are all of these different sort of channels through which the information is being reported. Tax authorities can't deal with it. And there's no sort of way to make sure that the information being reported is consistent.
1: Yeah. And actually, that finally, that touches on another point around information within families. Anyway, with ultra high net worth families, we see it hugely with our family officers. That's a problem itself in terms of what's reported to the tax authorities. But actually, it's a huge problem for the family itself in terms of what they have, what their worth is, where things need to be changed, where assets need to be changed and where assets need to be you know, held or, or in, improved. And so we have a, we're working with families at the moment to, to give a technical solution, a tech platform for family offices where they can report as a reporting tool in one place. So linking to banks all over the world, linking to public markets all over the world with a direct link so that live feeds on prices come straight in, but then also the less liquid assets, the yachts, the planes, the houses all in one place, and being able to report that all in one place allows the executives of the family office to have a much tighter grasp on what's going on with the family and therefore a much tighter grasp on making sure reporting is correct.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's an enormous topic in and of itself. We could do another session on that, (laughs) couldn't we? I mean, because there's a whole issue there around the extent to which children within a family are exposed to or become aware of Mm. through public reporting their own family's wealth and assets and you know the parents could quite legitimately rather like to restrict mm-hmm. the extent to which their children are exposed this information and yeah. that's quite well, that can be quite key to succession planning
1: yeah right? and actually fun very funny anecdote on that is that we had a um a son in his mid-20s of a, of a high net worth family that we look after ask us why he was being asked to sign a prenup before he got married because he had no idea that the family was worth so much money so he couldn't understand why his, you know, why his family were saying it's probably a good idea to sign a prenup. Oh, he really? Said, and he said, why would I need to sign a prenup? And they had to say, well, because you're worth quite a lot of money.
0: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really difficult environment, I think, for families these days. And I guess in, in a shameless plug for our industry, what I would suggest is that if they are contemplating a building their legacy and implementing effective succession planning, then privacy and confidentiality is a key tenant of that. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for. Ollie, thank you so much for joining me. I think yeah, this welcome. was a, a really useful discussion. Just a way of reminder, I'm David Whittaker. This has been Oli Morgan Crosby. The digital sessions are a series of online events, videos and podcasts, all available at mishcon.com. And if you have any questions you'd like answered or suggestions, what you'd like us to cover, please do let us know at at digitalsessions@mishcon.com. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com.